This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. Well, hey there. Hi there. Oh, door. How y'all doing out there in the land of podcasts? Uh, This is Paul. This is Structured Rambling. And today, it's a structured episode. We're talking about a single text. William Golding's dark classic, The Lord of the Flies. I guess it's just no definite article. I always make that mistake due to uh, a certain book about a lord and rings. Uh, It's just Lord of the Flies. Full disclosure, it's never been my favorite book. I've always seen it as a necessary evil, a novel that's on the high school curriculum, and uh, a teacher would be ignorant to just ignore its existence. Um, And I do see many of its virtues, and some kids really engage with it well. But it's a trade secret that English teachers don't adore every single text that we teach but we can fake it. We're that good. And I do get the appeal of Lord of the Flies for many readers and students. So I'm not knocking it. It's just never engaged with me as strongly. Um, It's impressively written, though a lot of the language and character names are very British and very dated. Uh, Imagine meeting a five-year-old or a 10-year-old named Ralph or Roger, or Phil. Um, And it's dark. Not to say it isn't believable, but I always try to find a little optimism, even in the most tragic of books. But this one is hard. It's pretty dark. And that's probably because of its intention to show to show us how young boys would sink to the levels they would sink to if removed from civilization. That's a grim message. It's not a wrong one, but it's a grim one. I think you probably know the story, but for some reason, if you don't, it's quite simple. The novel is set in an alternative 1950s. A nuclear war has broken out. A large group of British boys, none older than 13, are evacuated from the destruction and their plane crash lands on a tropical island. This is where the novel opens. No adults are with them. Uh, The pilots are dead. Uh, No one knows what is going on outside, um, off the island. And some of the boys are quite young. And the island's only other inhabitants are wild pigs that they will eventually hunt, kill, eat, Uh, decapitate and uh, bizarrely worship. The novel can be seen as an allegory. Masculine-run societies quickly lose sight of priorities and erode. Rules and conduct are often ignored, especially when power and force become dominant. Superstition reigns, and eventually a bored masculine society will lash out and consume itself. Yay! The four most significant characters, Ralph, Jack, 
Piggy and Simon are the strongest part of the allegory. It fits well with this masculine idea, but what really got me this last read was the realization that how it parallels to our current period of um, cultural divide, uh, particularly the current pandemic. But, 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 but hear me out. Before I make my fun little argument, let me remind you who these four kids are and what each represents just when reading the novel. We are first introduced to Ralph and Piggy pretty much simultaneously, and they're, they're both the quote-unquote good guys. Um, they are miles apart. In describing Ralph on page five, Golding says, quote, he was tall, he was old enough. Sorry, I'll start again. He was old enough. 12 years and a few months, to have lost the prominent tummy of childhood and not yet old enough for adolescence to have made him awkward. You could see now that he might make a boxer as far as width and heaviness of shoulders went, but there was a mildness about his mouth and eyes that proclaimed no devil. The narrator says that Ralph is tall and good-looking, the sort of people the sort of person people naturally admire even if they don't know it, even if that person doesn't necessarily deserve it. As the the book progresses, Ralph's hair grows ever longer and he must constantly push it out of his eyes. His hair symbolizes his lack of vision. Ralph is charismatic, even commanding, but he's not as bright or even as wise as Piggy. Uh, As the novel continues, he sometimes loses his train of thought, and the narrator refers to it as a curtain closing in his mind. His hair falls in his eyes, and he, he can't remain lucid long enough to finish his thoughts as time goes on. Without the stimulus of, of reference points, a 12-year-old boy can't keep his thoughts going. Ralph is the boy most concerned with the building and maintaining of a signal fire to signal passing ships. He's chiefly concerned with rescue, getting through this, but even he gets distracted with hunting, with dancing, and with just being a boy sometimes. Piggy's stereotype is lifted straight from the Atlas advertisements in the pages of Golden Age comic books. The fact that we first meet him on a beach and no one kicks sand in his face is a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Piggy is a weenie. He has spectacles, asthma, and Ralph encourages the use of the nickname because Piggy is fat. Piggy tries to tell Ralph, but we never learn his actual name at all. Ralph's father is a naval commander. Piggy's dad is dead. Ralph says his dad will rescue them. Piggy says, quote, I used to live with my auntie. She kept a sweet shop. I used to get ever so many sweets. Ralph can swim. Piggy can't. Ralph even picks on Piggy right away, saying things like, quote, sucks to your asmar and sucks to your auntie. And boyishly pretend- pretending to strafe him like an airplane. Um, They are on the same side, but they are not the same person. Nobody respects Piggy, but Piggy has all of the best ideas. He suggests getting a a, a count of the boys and a list of names, something else that is never completed. 
He suggests to Ralph that he use the conch shell as a symbol of their democracy. He even is tempted to put himself forward as leader once all the boys have gathered, but he knows his brains can't compete with Ralph's charisma. He has the precious spectacles needed to start the signal fire, which, ironically, are symbolic of another of his failings, the thing they need, the thing he needs in his weakness. He's the only boy on the island so afflicted. He's the only one that needs glasses. But Ralph's leadership is dependent on Piggy's knowledge. Everything Piggy represents helps establish Ralph early on. They're weaknesses for Piggy, but they grant Ralph some of his power. Jack Meridu is the novel's chief antagonist, the only significant character who gets a surname and by far the most dynamic character in the novel. Of these main four, only Jack and Ralph survive until the end of the novel, and Jack experiences a significant metamorphosis. Um, a devolution, a devolution. Uh, uh, Ralph experiences a devolution of sorts, but not to the same dramatic level that Jack does from, uh, from these first moments on the beach until the conclusion. We first meet Jack when we first meet everyone, save Piggy and Ralph, when Ralph blows the conch on the beach and boys start coming out of the forest. But as the other boys file in with mild confusion or innate obedience to authority and organization, Jack arrives controlled and charged and with an already existent sense of superiority. He marches a group of choir boys to the gathering. This is the only organized group on the island so far, and though their origin is musical, we should see it as more of a, a military connection. Um, Golding describes Ralph's first view of Jack's crew. It, quote, was a party of boys marching approximately in step in two parallel lines and dressed in a strangely eccentric clothing, shorts, shirts, and different garments they carried in their hands, but each boy wore a square black cap with a silver badge in it. Their bodies, from throat to ankle, were hidden by black cloaks, which bore a long silver cross on the left breast, and each neck was finished off with a ham-bone frill. The heat of the tropics, the descent, the search for food, and now this sweaty march along the blazing beach had given them the complexions of newly washed plums. The boy who controlled them was dressed in the same way, though his cap badge was golden. When his party was about 10 yards from the platform, he shouted an order and they halted, gasping, sweating, swaying in the fierce light. The boy himself came forward, vaulted onto the platform with his cloak flying, and peered into what to him was almost complete darkness. Where's the man with the trumpet? Jack has a sense of control, but it's control out of force and tradition rather than rules or respect. They trade a few jibes and then find unity, Ralph and, and Jack do, in mocking Piggy. For at this moment, before anything has happened, Ralph and Jack are almost equals. They speak of leadership and Jack says, quote, I ought to be chief because I'm chapter, chorister, and head boy. No one is as enthusiastic as he is because, Jack st because Ralph stands before them, rather. Uh, holding the conch that brought them together and which becomes the foundation of their democracy. Ralph has an immediate natural respect from all of the other boys, not forced and not dictated, 
propped by Piggy's ideas and his his wise counsel, Piggy's wise counsel, and his connection to the world of adults. So the matter is put to a vote. They establish themselves as a democracy, not a dictatorship. Golding uses the opportunity to create an immediate comparison between these two alphas. Quote, This toy of voting was almost as pleasing as the conch. Jack started to protest, but the clamor changed from the general wish for a chief to an election by a claim of Ralph himself. None of the boys could have found good reason for this. What intelligence had been shown was traceable to Piggy, while the most obvious leader was Jack. But there was a stillness and about Ralph as he sat that marked him out. There was his size and attractive appearance, and most obscurely, yet most powerfully, there was the conch. The being that had blown that had sat waiting for them on the platform with the delicate thing balanced on his knee was set apart. Jack is thoroughly embarrassed by this, and like most violent people, he is most dangerous when made a fool. Ralph mollifies him by saying, quote, The choir belongs to you, of course, and our little democracy immediately separates the executive branch from its military power. As with any banana republic, this leaves the door open for a later military coup, but for now, Jack is appeased. Things work. When deciding on just what the choir is, an army or what, Jack resolves that they will be hunters. Fortunately, they have something to hunt for on this island, though Jack's growing obsession with the act of hunting, his bloodlust after the kill, and... um, his search for power, the power he feels in killing, grants him uh, what that all grants him. That'll be the biggest factor in bringing their little infant society down. The last of these four characters who uh, create analogies for our own civilization appears to have no real significance given the time Golding spends introducing Ralph, Piggy, and Jack. Simon is named in the first chapter, but given no time. We get nothing about him for 50 pages until midway through chapter 3. Simon is confusing, because his analogy isn't as readily clear. Simon could be seen as the church, as the mystic who sees things or want to see things that aren't there. But this doesn't work because Jack, Piggy, and even Ralph all eventually believe that there is some beast out there that can come get them. Simon does not believe it. But Simon is quiet and unassertive. Simon is the voice of reason. A mystic, yes, but he's also curious. He investigates, he wonders, and because he reports, he is doomed. Simon, this is a quote, Simon, whom they expected to find there, was not in the bathing pool. When the other two had trotted down the beach to look back at the mountain, he had followed them for a few yards and then stopped. He had stood, frowning down at the pile of sand on the beach where somebody had been trying to build a little house or hut. He turned his back on this and walked into the forest with an air of purpose. He was a small, skinny boy, his chin pointed, and his eyes so bright they had deceived Ralph into thinking him delightfully gay and wicked. The coarse mop of black hair was long and swung down, almost concealing a low, broad forehead. He wore the remains of shorts, and his feet were bare like Jack's, always darkish in color. Simon was burned by the sun to a deep tan, 
that glistened with sweat. None of the other boys understand Simon, and readers initially feel the same. He likes to go off on his own, which will eventually kill him, but not in the way you'd expect. He's antisocial, though he does show compassion for the younger children, who they call one word, little ones. But on an island culture focused on organizing some sort of society, but doomed to, to that society falling to barbarity and turning in on itself, someone who operates outside of the culture is immune to it. A hermit, if you will, is suspicious and strange. This passage uh, that I read just now um, makes the reader wonder about Simon. Why does he go off on his own? It's only after finishing the book or even on a subsequent read that you truly fathom what Simon is. He's careful. He looks, he watches, he hears, he listens, he considers. He's not as aware of the rules or the scope of a greater society as Piggy is, but because Piggy is constantly bullied and threatened by the other boys, um, whether in fact or through implication, Piggy is more susceptible to influence. Simon is not. As time passes, Jack becomes more and more brutal, more driven. Um, He can only think about the hunt and the kill. Ralph keeps losing his focus, and he and Piggy are unable to keep the other boys intent on the goal of rescue. When the little one, Percival, introduces the concept of a beast in chapter 5, they're foregone to treat it and what it is. They do this with the paranoia of a small child who has been sleeping out in the wild. They debate it, but they believe it, and eventually they decide to find it. Simon is close to the clearest thinking at this point, ironically, as he's the one boy who will eventually suffer true mental illness, but he's an introvert. Um, and he's unable to, to speak out in the group. He lamely attempts to bring the beast discussion into some sense, but is defeated. Quote, I don't know, said Simon. His heartbeats were choking him, but the storm broke. Sit down, shut up, take the conch, sawed you, shut up. Ralph shouted, hear him, he's got the conch. What I mean is, maybe it's only us. Nuts. That was from Piggy, shocked out of decorum. Simon went on. We could be sort of... Simon became inarticulate in his effort to express mankind's essential illness. Inspiration came to him. What's the dirtiest thing there is? As an answer, Jack dropped into the uncomprehending silence that followed it, the one crude expressive syllable. Release was like an orgasm. Those little ones who climbed back on the twister fell off again and did not mind. The hunters were screaming with delight. Simon's effort fell about him in ruins. The laughter beat him cruelly, cruelly, and he shrank away defenseless to his seat. Simon is making sense, but these boys no longer hear it. Jack breaks off from the main group with himself as a chief of savages, intent on hunting, killing, dancing, and fun. Simon staves with Ralph and his common sense nearly saves them all. Unfortunately, before the outside world can save them with its order, 
the chaos it is in, the outside world's chaos, the conflict it is suffering, must turn the boys to chaos and conflict themselves first. And this is to Simon's tragedy. Because, you say, the kids get their beast after all. It's not the beast they think it is. How could it be? An ethereal phantom from the corners of our own mind is always more horrifying than reality. The Blair Witch Project taught me that. What they get is a dead body, a victim of the war back in the world. A fighter pilot is shot down above the island, and though he escapes by parachute, he's dead before he lands. Golding here creates one of the novel's most endearing and horrible images. The chapter title is The Beast from the Air. A silver moon rose over the horizon, hardly large enough to make a path of light even when it sat right down on the water. But there were other lights in the sky that moved fast, winked, or went out, though not even a faint popping came down from the battle fought at ten miles height. But a sign came down from the world of grown-ups, though at the time there was no child awake to read it. There was a sudden bright explosion and a corkscrew trail across the sky, then darkness again and stars. There was a speck above the island, a figure dropping swiftly beneath a parachute, a figure that hung with dangling limbs. The changing winds of various altitudes took the figure where they would. Then, three miles up, the wind steadied and bored in a descending curve around the sky and swept it in a great slant across the reef in the lagoon towards the mountain. The figure fell and crumpled among the blue flowers of the mountainside. But now there was a gentle breeze at, his height, at this height too, and the parachute flopped and banged and pulled. So the figure, with feet that dragged behind it, slid up the mountain. Yard by yard, puff by puff, the breeze hauled the figure through the blue flowers, over the boulders and red stones, till it lay huddled among the shattered rocks of the mountaintop. Here the breeze was fitful and allowed the strings of the parachute to tangle and festoon, and the figure sat, its helmeted head between its knees, held by a complication of lines. When the breeze blew, the lines would strain taut, and some accident of this pull lifted the head and chest upright so that the figure seemed to peer across the brow of the mountain. Then, each time the wind dropped, the lines would slacken and the figure bow forward again, sinking its head between its knees. So as the stars moved across the sky, the figure sat on the mountaintop and bowed and sank and bowed again. Yeah, that always gets to me. This is one of the two or three images that has haunted me from my first read of this novel and it still gives me the willies every time. It's what keeps this from being a simple book. After the breaking of their little tribe, after Jack forms the aptly named Savages, Percival's introduction of the beast idea could be laughable and just child imagination. But the marionette corpse adds frame to those imaginations, like wind through the trees at midnight. It's imagination fuel. Just by the way, I find it interesting that on an island of characters whose names are straight out of 1964 Rotary Club roster, the little uns, the little un who introduces the concept of the beast is named Percival, about as Arthurian a name as you can get. 
depending on the version of King Arthur's story you read, Percival's one of the purest of Arthur's knights, and he is one of the two that pierced the veil to actually achieve the Holy Grail, again, depending on the source. However, most modern, or at least last 500-year versions, give the quest's achievement of the Holy Grail to Galahad. Where the comparison is neat to me here is Percival's well, he's raised at a forest in the wild by his mother after his dad dies. He is more pure and innocent because of his natural upbringing. It's possible that Golding is playing on this ironically, trading the purity of the green world for the primitive unknowns of the island. Anyways, the corpse is discovered by the twins, uh, also said as one word, Salmoneric, which legitimizes the beast um, in their eyes because Sam and Eric are biggins, although lesser biggins than Ralph. Golding is very careful with his symbols. Whenever primitivism and superstition take over, it's also noted that the signal fire is out. This is their connection to civilization, so to put it out allows the savagery to take over. As well, the conch, the symbol of their fledgling democracy, is fading. It is, it is um, becoming less brilliant, more dull-looking. And it is broken the moment Piggy dies. Uh, a, a double end to the rule of law and order. The person who knows the rules and the symbol of their rule, both are broken. Anyway, Sam and Eric announce the beast and they, the, the kids just churn in paranoia. Even Ralph believes it must exist after this. Jack and Ralph unite again briefly in the face of finding it and killing it. Piggy suggests cowering and waiting, and societal order uh, sort of just falls apart in the face of this primal force. That's, once again, I've said it before on this podcast, that's why zombie movies and apocalypse movies are so popular. Uh, you, you erase society and you just go to basic survival. Only Simon, who is a thinker, not a doer, and not a speaker, quote, felt a flicker of incredulity. However, however Simon thought of the beast, there rose before his inward sight the picture of a human at once heroic and sick. And that's exactly right. Remember that when I come to the, the COVID metaphor, or we could pull in a movie like Don't Look Up uh, and make it about climate change, the one who is right has the least influence, even less influence than Piggy. As they search for the beast, Jack, frothing with anticipation, gets frustrated because he's been everywhere and seen nothing, not even tracks. Ralph is flummoxed as well, following Jack as the better hunter. In their most frantic back-and-forth quote, Simon mumbled confusedly, I don't believe in the beast. Ralph answered him politely as if agreeing about the weather. No, I suppose not. Of course, Ralph isn't supposing why not. He's supposing as a commentary on Simon. He misses the point, and thus this is a moment. He could have thought more clearly, indulged the quiet boy, and been won over by Simon's logic. Sadly, he misses the chance, and events spiral to tragedy. Ralph and Jack eventually see the corpse for themselves and are fooled by its movement 
and their own superstition, and for everyone on the island, the beast is real. Hunting and killing are the only priorities. Jack, representing brute force without thought, is the man of the hour. He has his hunters, the former choir, now and for the remainder of the novel, called Savages. He has them cut the head off a killed pig and mount it on a spear as a sacrifice to the beast. The beast has gone from threat to pagan jealous god in a moment. This breaking is followed by a breaking with Simon. Someone, something is is wrong with Simon. Something is wrong with Simon's mind. Um, His introspective nature, his hermit-like introversion with a strange need to go off on his own has already earned him a reputation of being, quote, batty to the other boys. But now something is very, really wrong within him. Something in his head hurts. And he says to himself that these are his, quote, times. From what does Simon suffer? Epilepsy? A brain tumor? Uh... Mild schizophrenia? We can only guess. But in one of these times, he hears the voice of the pig's head. It speaks to him as the Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub is not named. It's called this because the rotting head draws flies. But you can see Golding's intent by what it says to him. Quote, You are a silly little boy, said the Lord of the Flies. Just an ignorant, silly little boy. Simon moved his swollen tongue, but said nothing. Don't you agree, said the Lord of the Flies. Aren't you just a silly little boy? Simon answered him in the same silent voice. Well then, said the Lord of the Flies, you'd better run off and play with the others. They think you're batty. You don't want Ralph to think you're batty, do you? You like Ralph a lot, don't you? And Piggy and Jack... Simon's head was tilted slightly up. His eyes could not break away, and the Lord of the Flies hung in space before him. What are you doing out here all alone? Aren't you afraid of me? Simon shook. There isn't anyone to help you, only me. And I'm the beast. Simon's mouth labored, brought forth audible words. Pig's head on a stick. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill, said the head. For a moment or two, the forest and all the other dimly appreciated places echoed with the parody of laughter. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go. Why things are what they are. The laughter shivered again. Come now, said the Lord of the Flies. Get back to the others and we'll forget the whole thing. Simon's head wobbled. His eyes were half closed as though he were intimating the obscene thing, imitating the obscene thing on the stick. He knew that one of his times was coming. The Lord of the Flies was expanding like a balloon. This is ridiculous. You know perfectly well you'll only meet me down there, so don't try to escape. Simon's body was arched and stiff. The Lord of the Flies spoke in the voice of a schoolmaster. This has gone on quite far enough. My poor misguided child, do you think you know better than I do? There was a pause. I'm warning you. I'm going to get waxy, do you see? You're not wanted, understand? We are going to have fun on this island, understand? We're going to have fun on this island, so don't try it on, my poor misguided boy. Or else... Simon found he was looking into a vast mouth. There was blackness within, a blackness that spread. 
or else, said the Lord of the Flies, we shall do you. See, Jack and Roger and Morris and Robert and Bill and Piggy and Ralph, do you see? Simon was inside the mouth. He fell down and lost consciousness. We must note two things beyond the general creepiness of this passage. First, Simon declares a pig's head on a stick, even though it's speaking to him. Simon denies what's happening in his mind because it's illogical. Contrast this with what the other boys are willing to believe with minimal evidence, even Ralph and Piggy. As well, the Lord of the Flies repeats that they are going to have fun on this island. This echoes Jack's sentiments when he establishes himself as the chief of the savages. Fun. No signal fire, no building of shelters. Fun. And for the savages and their lord... Fun is dancing, feasting, hunting, killing, all in equal measure. Simon will be victim of that fun, and the Lord of the Flies foreshadows it as a promise. A blood vessel bursts in Simon's nose when he wakes up. The Lord is no longer speaking to him when when he comes to. The storm is building, but he goes up the mountain to where Jack and Ralph saw the beast. He finds the body on page 161. The flies had found the figure too. The lifelike movement would scare them off for a moment so that they made a dark cloud round the head. Then, as the blue material of the parachute collapsed, the corpulent figure would bow forward, sighing, and the flies settle once more. Simon felt his knees smack the rock. He crawled forward and soon he understood. The tangle of lines showed him the mechanics of this parody. He examined the white nasal bones, the teeth, the colors of corruption. He saw how pitilessly the layers of rubber and canvas held together the poor body that should be rotting away. Then the wind blew again, and the figure lifted, bowed, and breathed foully at him. Simon knelt on all fours and was sick till his stomach was empty. Then he took the lines in his hands. He freed them from the rocks and the figure from the wind's indignity. At last he turned away and looked down at the beaches. The fire by the platform appeared to be out, or at least making no smoke. Further along the beach, beyond the little river and near a great slab of rock, a thin trickle of smoke was climbing into the sky. Simon, forgetful of the flies, shaded his eyes with both hands and peered at the smoke. Even at that distance, it was possible to see that most of the boys, perhaps all the boys, were there. So they had shifted camp then, away from the beast. As Simon thought this, he turned to the poor broken thing that sat stinking by his side. The beast was harmless and horrible, and the news must reach the others as soon as possible. He started down the mountain, and his legs gave gave beneath him. Even with great care, the best he could do was stagger. Simon is right, and he must tell the others. He must come down from the mountain like Moses to free the others from their sin, from their ignorance, from their foolishness. But of course, the storm and their savagery on the beast are all reaching a crescendo when he gets down. Simon always travels alone and no one is there to justify him, to help him, to corroborate his story. Ralph and Piggy have come to Jack's savages as penitents, seeking the meat from the successful hunt. Jack Chief of the savages, ruler by force, demands a dance, and all of them, Ralph and Piggy included, give themselves into a mindless spasm of primal thrills as the storm breaks. 
it is this prehistoric rite that Simon faithfully intrudes upon with his news. The circle became a horseshoe. A thing was crawling out of the forest. It came darkly, uncertainly. The shrill screaming that rose before the beast was like a pain. The beast stumbled into the horseshoe. Kill the beast, cut his throat, spill his blood. The blue-white scar was constant, the noise unendurable. Simon was crying out something about a dead man on a hill. Kill the beast, cut his throat, spill his blood, do him in. The sticks fell in the mouth of the new circle, crunched and screamed. The beast was on its knees in the center, its arms folded over its face. It was crying out, out against the abominable noise, something about a body on the hill. The beast struggled forward, broke the ring, and fell over the steep edge of the rock to the sand by the water. At once, the crowd surged after it, poured down the rock, leapt onto the beast, screamed, struck, bit, tore. There were no words and no movements but the tearing of teeth and claws. Then the clouds opened and let down the rain like a waterfall. The water bounded from the mountaintop, tore leaves and branches from the trees, poured like a cold shower over the struggling heap on the sand. Presently the heap broke up and figures staggered away. Only the beast lay still, a few yards from the sea. Even in the rain they could see how small a beast it was, and already its blood was staining the sand. Now a great wind blew the rain sideways, cascading the water from the forest trees. On the mountaintop, the parachute filled and moved. The figure slid, rose to its feet, spun, swayed down through a vastness of wet air, and trod with ungainly feet the tops of the high trees. Falling, still falling, it sank towards the beach, and the boys rushed screaming into the darkness. The parachute took the figure forward, furrowing the lagoon, and bumped it over the reef and out to sea. And then a little later, somewhere over the darkened curve of the world, the sun and moon were pulling, and the film of water on the earth planet was held, bulging slightly on one side while the solid core turned. The great wave of the tide moved further along the island, and the water lifted, softly surrounded by a fringe of inquisitive bright creatures, itself a silver shape beneath a steadfast constellation, Simon's dead body moved out towards the open sea. And so, two beasts die, neither of them truly a beast at all. One is murdered, the other is dispelled, and from this moment, Jack and his savages can only hunt and kill. Piggy and the conch and rules and democracy are shattered together, and Ralph can only run. The irony of the ending is the fire Jack burns in an attempt to kill Ralph, to, to kill Ralph, to flush him out like prey, signals their rescue. Let's review, let's review now the allegorical purpose of the four main characters, the societal aspects that they may come to represent. Ralph is the politician. Everyone can appreciate that he looks like a leader without really looking in as to what is inside of him that makes him a leader. If he relies properly on someone smart, someone who could make him see the rules and remind him of the plan, he can do an okay job. Unfortunately, he's prone to trying to satisfy too many disparate opinions. When a politician tries to keep too many different people happy, it appears that he stands for nothing, and he can easily lose sight of what he's trying to do. 
In ending a pandemic or fighting climate change, he has an unenviable position because he must make decisions that will never they will never please everyone, and yet that's his greatest desire. Piggy is the chief medical officer or the science advisor. He knows what they're trying to do better than the politician. In fact, his job is to remind the politician of their goal, but he, Piggy, has no power to speak of on his own without the politician. He's completely dependent on the politician's protection and help because he lacks the charisma and the leadership. He must often step away from the podium and let the politician say what must be done in watered-down doublespeak, thus making the end goal more distant and more clear. Jack, of course, is the libertarian. He believes that his personal freedom to do what he wants is all that matters, even if it costs lives, prevents rescue, extends the pandemic, or ruins the planet. Jack resents Ralph because he feels that he, Jack, knows better and has better ideas. There's no evidence to support him. There's all kinds of evidence to refute him. But that evidence comes from Piggy. And who are you going to listen to? The striking chief with his team of choir boys or the fat asthmatic whiner? When Jack is is presented evidence of what must be done, Jack says that he just feels differently. And those feelings should be validated. Jack always has the threat of force to wave around when he doesn't get his way. Now, Simon is the grassroots scientist who doesn't have his hat in the political game. He sees the virus spread and knows how to defeat it. He sees the mountain of plastic choking the ocean. He's Jennifer Lawrence in Don't Look Up, pointing at the killer comet hurtling towards Earth. He's too frank. He has no charisma. He's unlikable and suspicious, and though he's right, no one listens to him, like some sort of a logical Cassandra in the city of Troy. Yeah, there's the allegory for our times. Jack driving a truck to downtown Ottawa. Ralph getting outvoted because he can't please any part of his party. Piggy saying what needs to be said, but then bowing to Ralph's nonsense words, and Simon, the smartest one of them all, being ignored completely. William Golding's Lord of the Flies is not a happy novel, but it's a true novel, even if it's allegorical. As I have made clear, it's as pertinent now as when it was first published. Horrifying because it might be even more pertinent. And I'm opening up something that's going to be happening over the next couple of months. It's an allegory set in a post-apocalypse. And I'm going to go post-apocalypse with my next structured episode, and then I'm going to go dystopian. If you don't need any downers, maybe listen to some generalized pop music before those episodes thanks i want to thank you for listening today and if you enjoyed my podcast please feel free to give me a rating and review episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month have a great day